industry focus. The podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. It's Christmas week, and we've got a special edition of Industry Focus to celebrate. We've got all the Industry Focus hosts together to talk about the year that was in 2020, where we're headed in 2021, our favorite stock right now, and more. It's great to have everybody back together again. How have y'all been? Hey. Hey, what's hey. going on, Nick? You know, it's been a crazy year uh, in 2020. I remember distinctly uh, sitting next to Dylan in the office in January, and uh, now <laughs> I don't know if I remember what the office looks like anymore. Uh, how are y'all getting used to the work from home? I know, Dylan, we were talking about before the show started, kind of in a new house. I mean, it's been a, it's been a wild year to, uh, to be doing anything, but uh, maybe to be a new homeowner especially. Yeah, it, it's been interesting, and I've had a little bit of a, a, a fun ride with home ownership. We can touch on that a little bit later in the show, uh, but but yeah, I think I think by and large it is it has been interesting to realize that hey, you know, we we can, we can keep doing our thing here remotely. Uh, I, I miss the office a lot. I miss seeing all of you guys a lot. Kind of the magic gets lost when we're not in the studio, but it's been fun to be able to continue connect as we're remote via the podcast, via Motley Fool Live, all that stuff. Yeah, no, the Molly Fool Live has been really exciting this year for folks who are members who will be able to see us live and ask us questions. If you're not, uh, maybe that's something to hop on uh, in 2021. Uh, but before we talk about 2021, I thought it'd be great to talk about what happened in 2020. And certainly a lot happened, and it's kind of tough to boil that down to one headline. But I'm going to ask you all to do that. Uh, so what was your biggest headline for 2020? Let's go in the order that we, that we air during the week. So I'll let Jason Moser go first on financials. All right. Well, I'm happy to lead off here. The um, it probably comes no surprise. I mean, I think 2020. This was really the year that the payments companies made their mark. I mean, we didn't have, I think, any real question going into the year, even pre-pandemic, that companies like Square and PayPal had a lot of potential. Um, but what we've seen play out here over the course of this year has been really nothing short of, of phenomenal, and, and a lot of that. Unfortunately, has to do with COVID nineteen and, and, and its impacts on our economy. But I, I mean, we've said it before that with everything that's going on, there's going to be a lot of good that comes from this. And, and I think that the success of these two companies and others in the space um, is going to be certainly a good thing for for many years to come. I mean, if you look at some of the numbers that these companies have recorded uh, over their their most recent quarters, it's just really it's 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 amazing. I mean, PayPal's total payment volume in its most recently reported quarter was 247 billion dollars. That was up 36% from a year ago. And, and and it's working now. That that total payment volume is operating on basically an annual run rate of 1 trillion dollars. And and so that's money that's flowing through their networks, whether it's PayPal or Venmo or Whatever, a Zoom, the the remittance company. Um, here's another point that I found pretty interesting. They they added in the most recent quarter 15.2 million net new active accounts, and that puts them now at 361 million active accounts. Now, in line with this user growth, it's worth noting something. And if you go back to January of this year, when they were talking during the fourth quarter earnings call, management had targeted for 2020 to add approximately 35 million net new active accounts. Inclusive of acquisitions, so they're calling for about 35 million net new active accounts in, in 2020. In in this most recent release, they upped that range now to 70 million, so essentially double. And and that really is is a testament to, to what's been going on in, in our economy here over the past year, as people were figuring out new ways to get money from point A to point B. And then, and then Square was was really more the same. I mean, total payment volume for Square, it's, it's still actually, believe it or not, a fraction of what goes through PayPal's networks, but it's growing quickly too. Uh, Transaction-based revenue was, was up 13% year over year. And subscription and services-based revenue was up 60% year over year. And really, the cash app, which is is driving so much of the engagement for Square, uh, you're seeing the... the, the Number of average daily transacting active cash app customers. I mean, the people who are actually using this app on a daily basis doubled from the same period a year ago, and gross profit was up 212%. So, I mean, we knew going in these were strong companies. We know coming out of 2020, these are just more than strong companies. These are companies that are really reshaping this landscape. Yeah, Jason, you mentioned kind of how big PayPal and all those things have gotten this year. Made me think about uh, another thing. I was poking around on DraftKings the other day. PayPal's the number <laughs> one payments processor on that platform. Might be getting a little bit of business boost uh, this year after uh, after some uh, elections uh, back in uh, November. 
I, you know, listen, hey, man, I mean, sports betting is really gaining a lot of steam, and uh, I love to see it. I think it's entertaining. I do it myself. I have a lot of fun with it, and uh, you better believe that those, those sports, sports betting is, is going to be something that helps drive a lot of the money that goes through these networks. I, you know, I cannot confirm or deny if I've ever used Venmo to pay off a sports <laughs> bet, but, uh, but yeah, there's, that's definitely part of the, uh, the addressable market. Emily, what do you think about consumer goods? Well, I'm really happy that you started with Jason because it started on a high note. Uh, (laughs) Inevitably, 2020 was a really challenging year for most consumer goods companies. And while there are a handful of companies that I could highlight as having a great year, I think I'd be remiss if I did acknowledge that 2020 was the year of retail bankruptcies. The number of shows we had to do in 2020 over retail bankruptcies was much greater than even I expected. I think that anybody expected heading into the pandemic. I kind of want to pass the question off uh, off to you, Jason, Dylan, and Nick. Uh, anybody, feel free to, to raise your hand if you have a guess here. I'm curious, how many retail companies, international retail companies, do you think went bankrupt in 2020? I'll throw a guess out there. I'll say uh, 18. That's a good guess. It's over 9,000. <laughs> <laughs> Jason, you're going to take the over under on 9,000. I'm going somewhere in between. I'm going to say I'm going to I'm going to say 200. Well, Dylan, I think you're the closest. Maybe I overshot the the expression of of bankruptcies, but Retail Dive actually has a running list of 2020 bankruptcies and there were 29 retail bankruptcies so wow. far this year, uh, which may not sound as much as 9,000, but when you think about a lot of these brands, to name a few, we had JCPenney, which was big news, but we also had Lauren Taylor, J Crew, Sir La Taube, most recently Guitar Center. A lot of these brands that many consumers have have grown accustomed to just kind of being there aren't going to be there, at least not in the same quantities that they were previously anymore. And you'll hear a lot of investors say that the pandemic killed these businesses. We've been really upfront, not just on industry focus, but at The Motley Fool, that this was a long-term trend. The pandemic just accelerated something that was happening to these businesses to begin with. So again, 2020, not the best year for retail companies. It was the year of bankruptcies. Uh, Fingers crossed 2021's a bit better. Yeah, I mean, so I'll go ahead and hop into my, my energy topic here because we're gonna, I guess, get just pour on the doom and gloom. Uh, so, so my my uh, my headline uh, is kind of it's happening, and it's kind of th- three sub headlines for that. Number one, it's happening when it comes to bankruptcies in the shale patch. We we talked about for the last several years when you look at a lot of these oil and gas companies. Uh, for every oil barrel of oil or or equivalent amount of gas you're pulling out of the ground, actually losing money, and this has been going back to 2016, even among some of, some of the large. Oil companies, and we've been expecting for a number of years there to be a round of bankruptcies due, particularly this year, as there was a big wall of, of, of debt coming due, coming back from the last downturn uh, in 2016. So, if you look just through the first three quarters of 2000 of, of 2020, uh, you are looking at 89 billion dollars in in bankruptcy debt through the first three quarters of 2020. You compare that to 2016, it was the previous largest uh, full year we've seen uh, in recent years, $82 billion in the industry. So for the first three quarters uh, of this year, you had more bankruptcy debt uh, than you saw uh, in the entire industry in the previous peak uh, back in 2016. Again, you see a lot of these names folks might be familiar with. Chesapeake Energy, a big name early on in, in the shell boom, was kind of this face of this growth of uh, of uh, of shale production in the U.S. Diamond Offshore, a significant uh, uh, offshore producer. High Crush, uh, which is a, a sand provider for uh, for for the shale, the shale patch. Just a lot, all that do coming this year in a year where, where because of the pandemic, uh, international travel being shut down, much of the economy uh, uh, slowing in a significant way. Energy demand really through the floor, um, and so we kind of expected uh, uh, these bankruptcies to take place, and, and it really. Happened this year. We, we've seen lots of lots of companies announce cutbacks uh, on, on their expenditures in oil and gas. Just saw a record write down from Exxon. So it's really a lot of those bills coming due uh, in shale. On the other side of kind of it's happening. If you look at, at renewable energy, the first half of this year, uh, renewable overtook fossil fuel generation in Europe for the first time ever. Uh, the IEA put out a report this year that expects ninety uh, percent of new electricity generation uh, produced in twenty twenty uh, to be renewable power. That uh, puts renewable power on a trend to displace coal as the largest producer of energy in the world by 2025, uh, based on their projections. And so you're seeing kind of this inflection point as these oil and gas companies that we'd expected to 
declare bankruptcy. That that happens in this this huge growth in renewable, and we've seen that in the market as well. There's clearly been a lot of investor of investors running out yelling, "It's happening! This is the turning point." Just to give you give you a few names: Enphase Energy up 486 percent this year, Solar Edge 225 percent, Brookfield Renewable. Uh, up 63%. Vestas Wind Systems, one of the largest wind power producers in the world, up 102%. And that's without getting into uh, the electric vehicle craze that has been absolutely massive this year. So, so you know, whether you look at bankruptcies or this rise of renewable, it's happening in energy. Nick, I'm glad that you were a little buffer between <laughs> the consumer goods <laughs> and, and tech discussion, because I would have felt like I was gloating a little bit, recapping what happened in tech this year. Um, and it's and it's hard, you know. The, the, I think the the tech industry and a lot of people that have been heavily invested in tech are probably enjoying some pretty nice returns this year. Um, my my headline for our space here is uh, a decade of change in just a couple months. And you know, this is something I can't take credit for. This is floating around the internet. A lot of people, a lot smarter than me, have probably put it down first. But I think it does a good job of capturing really what 2020 did. And it and it kind of hits on what Emily was kind of getting to earlier with some of the declines that we've seen in the consumer goods space, where a lot of the mega trends that we've been watching for a long time, e-commerce, digital payments, things like gaming, things like the move to the cloud and more reliance on software as a service, all of these things were items that we were tracking and things that we expected to continue to take a larger, larger share of things over the next five, 10 years. And what we saw was gas just get dumped on that. And have them turn into wildfires very quickly, and a lot of be- a lot of companies have benefited really dramatically for that. Um, and digital businesses in general have done really strong because they've been able to deliver their products as they normally would. But I think it's worth noting that a lot of the companies that are in the consumer goods space, or maybe typically uh, are thought of as retail, still put up some good years. They were the companies that tended to have those tech investments in place already. So Domino's Pizza, great example company that has continued to hum along, been a market beater this year. They've invested so heavily in their online operations. Uh, Wayfair, another business. I don't I don't need to uh, gloat when it comes to Wayfair. I think Jason can do that for us. But you know, that's that's a business that was well positioned and and you know has just continued to be a great performer, probably one of the best performers on the market this year. They're companies that have heavily invested in their tech, heavily invested in making their products as easy to consume as possible and it's paid off for them. Yeah, the other one that comes to mind for me, Dylan, is Peloton, right? I mean, like you talk about a time that's better set up for for a digitally connected exercise company um, that caters towards upper class folks being at home more often. That's pretty much the perfect storm for a company like that. <laughs> yeah, and and you know that was one of those stocks when it came public. I was like, you know, I don't know if I buy the thesis here, and uh, I was I was certainly wrong. <laughs> you know, uh, in twenty twenty, you know, it was one of those things you couldn't have quite anticipated it, but it seems like there was enough there already that there was going to be a solid uh, customer base for them. Right. I mean, and you're there to, to capture that opportunity. One of these things I've I've thought about this year. I don't know if y'all have thoughts on this, but like, so if if this pandemic had happened in 2010, would we be we, would would we be talking about uh, Skype the way we're talking about Zoom today? I mean, I'd say it's distinctly possible. I mean, being just because I don't know there were any other real solutions out there. So I mean, I, I you know, this time around there were plenty of solutions. It's just, they all kind of paled in comparison to Zoom. I mean that that phrase they kept mentioning in their S1, it just works. It just works. You know, there actually was something to that because when you try to use a lot of these other platforms, they, they're a little clunky. They don't always just work and they're not integrated so seamlessly into email and other other things that we're using on a day-to-day basis. So that's that's an interesting question. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. In the universe that we live in, where we exist, it did happen. And Zoom has really captured this trend in a way that, you know, my grandma knows what Zoom is. And I'm sure everybody <laughs> here's grandmas knows what Zoom is. And uh, you're not going to unring that bell. So, so that that's 2020. Obviously, a, a lot has changed. Probably things are, are going to continue to change. What's something that you're watching in your sectors going into 2021? I'll start with you again, Jason. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen. Let's 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 jump into the exciting world of big banks, guys. I mean, that's what everybody wants to talk about, right? J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, the sexy world of banking. Um, Honestly, it could get a little interesting, though. And, you know, my partner in crime on the Monday show, Matt Frankel, and I, we've been talking about this a lot throughout the year. Uh, and so, something to keep in mind is with everything that's happened during this pandemic and, and things that banks have had to do, they've had to reserve a lot of money here. They've had to put a lot of money aside to really protect themselves against 
defaults and bad loans and delinquencies and, and, and whatnot because the economy has taken such a hit. And to put a little context on that, I mean, JP Morgan, for example, has uh, reported close to $34 billion in reserves at the, as of their October call. And so, what ultimately happens here is they're, they're basically protecting themselves, just in case. But if we run into a situation here, as it you know, appears, obviously, we have a, a vaccine um, that's, that's now been approved and that's rolling out, and there will be, I think, more. And it does also appear that there's going to be some type of stimulus that is announced here sooner or later to help people try to get back on their feet a little bit. Uh, it's distinctly possible that these reserves, they, they may have over-reserved. In other words, there may not be the level of delinquencies and write-offs that they, that they thought there could have been. And so, when banks start recognizing that the economy is, is improving and, and things are getting better, they'll start releasing those reserves because they don't need them. And what that ultimately does, it flows down to the bottom line for banks and earnings. If that does happen, uh, we may see we may see a point where these banks are dealing with a very very difficult time, just in low interest rates, really wringing out as much profitability as they can. But if we see these reserves released, and that, and that really helps uh, add a little tailwind to that bottom line, uh, you you could see some some multiple expansion there in in banks they, thanks to some inflated earnings there due to these. Uh, reserve releases. So, definitely going to be keeping an eye on that here. Um, in, in, in the first half of 2021, I think they're talking about uh, seeing some of these charge-offs and delinquencies maybe peaking. And then, towards the back half of 21, uh, 2021, you'd see some of those reserves start to, to come down a little bit as they, re- as they release them. But uh, it'll definitely be something to keep an eye on. And we'll be talking about it um, on many Monday shows to come, I'm sure. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how, how all these play out for these different businesses. Because, I mean, we kind of got, when you look at the vaccine, Kind of the best case scenario. I mean, if you if you underwrote this, is this is what oh, was yeah. going to happen in your projections for almost any business? I mean, you're being pretty aggressive, so um, it's going to probably work out to the good for investors. I think so, Emily. When I look at the consumer goods industry in 2021, there's a lot of great tailwinds that were coming out of businesses that did survive 2020. Uh, the businesses that succeeded had amazing years. Uh, and that's going to set up a really tough comparable landscape for 2021, naturally. I'll use one example that we've talked about on the show before, which is Dick's Sporting Goods, actually. If you looked at Dick's Sporting Goods last quarter, they acquired 2 million new customers. That was a 70% increase year over year. And more than 70% of their sales are done through these membership customers. So customer retention, not just for Dick's, but for any consumer goods company that's surviving 2020 is going to be vitally important to make sure their comparable stale increases in 2021 are not going to disappoint investors. Uh, for reference, Dick Sporting Goods had a 23% comps increase last quarter. Wow. That's unheard of for companies like Dick's. I would bet, if I was a betting woman, that they have negative comp growth next year, not just Dick's again, but many of these companies that survive. I would Put a lot of emphasis if you're an investor and you're watching these reports, these quarterly reports come in throughout the second half of 2021. If there is a company that is growing comps on top of already really impressive comps, that to you should paint the picture of what's going to be a really great long-term successful retail winner because it tells you as an investor that they retained the customers they acquired during the pandemic. I'm excited to see what the comps are for some of these travel folks in 2021. When you talk about the vaccine again, like, can you imagine the comps are, li- are going to be like for like Las Vegas or like Miami properties come like <laughs> summer 2021? It's going to be insane. <laughs> One can only hope. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Uh, so, so, so my uh, big uh, thing to watch for 2021 is just energy policy. We just had an election here in, in November. Uh, There's kind of been a big topic going back the last four years with the, the Paris Climate Accord. And those sorts of things. Uh, Biden's uh, go to his website has talked about requiring aggressive methane pollution limits for new and existing oil and gas operations. That's been kind of a recurring thing we've seen in the shell patch for a long time. Massive amounts of flaring um, of natural gas. If companies are required to figure out how to do something with that, uh, there, there's certainly some impacts that can have on natural gas prices as well as the, the cost and extraction for some of these companies. Uh, is also talked about investing $400 billion over the next 10 years into public investment in clean energy. That's significant impacts when it comes to renewable energy operators, utilities, uh, uh, things like that. Has also talked about requiring public companies to disclose climate-related financial risks 
and greenhouse gas emissions in their supply chain. Again, you see this continued growth in, in ESG investing as you heighten uh, heighten disclosure requirements for, for some of these companies. Certainly affects the ability for for capital uh, uh, to flow to them. And then just 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 more broadly, uh, how does this new administration impose these types of, of restrictions where you want to push more of the economy towards renewables in an environment where we're in an economic recovery here in the U.S. and oil and gas jobs are a significant part of, uh, at least when it comes to high wage uh, high wage jobs for folks who, who aren't highly educated in the U.S. There's this tension when it comes to this policy clearly wanting to push more towards renewable energy and the need to protect these jobs as the economy uh, tries to recover. I'm interested to see how, how things get navigated both in terms of those things and then also how anything gets navigated through Congress in 2020 slash 2021. So I'll be paying attention to that, seeing what happens. Yeah, I think for me over in the tech space, uh, I'm, I'm kind of looking at things similarly to Emily, where I'm really curious to see what happens with the year-over-year growth rates for some of these businesses, particularly the ones that have had a lot of growth pulled forward in a really dramatic way. Um, if we wind up in anything that looks like a, a quasi-normal 2021 at some point, you know, what does that do to our growth expectations for these businesses? Um, what are we looking for in terms of year-over-year growth, particularly in the software space um, where valuations are already very high to begin with um, and have been stretched even more because these companies have performed so well? So, I mean, we might see some odd stuff going on, especially in e-commerce, um, but I think we just kind of need to <laughs> go in with some expectations that we're probably going to see some weird earnings numbers coming in from a lot of businesses in 2021, and it might be a good year just to re-emphasize, you know, look at the underlying business metrics, the key business metrics for a lot of these companies, look at the things that are the lifeblood of the business, like users, customers, retention rates, because those are going to give you a pretty decent signal of what's going on with the company, even if the top or bottom line numbers look a little weird. Absolutely. So, so we'll see what happens in 2021, uh, whether whether these are the big stories we end up following or whether there's another global pandemic or something that totally steals uh, all the headlines. But uh, that's something to pay attention to. Talk about the craziness of this year for 2020. Just go back to that. What was the biggest lesson you took away from this year as an investor, Jason? Let me see here. The biggest lesson, I, you know, for me, it was, it was to never underestimate the power of the entrepreneur and, and their ability to adapt. I think uh, this, this, I mean, COVID. I think we we all probably underestimated it at the very beginning. I mean, I, it, it took everybody by surprise as to to exactly the response um, that 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 we saw in in March and April and shutting everything down and, and it just it was, it was something none of us had ever really experienced and um to to see so many businesses suffering from that and then to see the lights come back on and to see that they had come up with new and clever ways of doing business i mean i think the food service industry is probably the easiest example uh, I mean, all sorts of folks relying on that digital presence where you could order online and just go pick up and, and whatnot. Um, it, it's just been, it's been really impressive for me to say, I mean, I know a lot of people out there are still having a difficult time, I mean, I mean, but you've also seen a lot of new ways of doing business and kind of going back to what, what Dylan was talking about earlier with bringing forward so much of that transformation, that digital transformation of, of a decade into essentially a couple of months. I mean, that that's just it's been nice to see again i mean i feel like we see some good things that come out of this some new ways of doing business and and folks really got out there and, and and put their minds to work and came up with just some new innovative ways of doing business and i think we've we've benefited as consumers and certainly investors have benefited too from from being invested in those companies yeah i think best example is the vaccine itself right you go from a, a virus nobody had ever heard of to now you have you know what appears to be a, a very effective vaccine just by everybody deciding hey we're going to everybody with any expertise in that field all got to work on the same problem at the same time and it's incredible you know how quickly uh, we can make progress there yeah, the first thing that came to mind with this was just that old Austin Powers uh, scene from the first Austin Powers movie where he, get, he's, he comes back from being frozen. He's like, yay, capitalism. And I mean, it just it just <laughs> goes to show you, I mean, listen, that that that's something that just never had been done before. And, and then let's not forget the lessons that they've learned from developing this vaccine in such short order. I think those are lessons that are going to play out over the course of the coming decade and beyond that, that have the potential to help us in all sorts of ways as, as a global society. So it's, it's again, I think there's going to be a lot of positive stuff that comes from this. 
Jason's was so insightful. I'm almost afraid to give my <laughs> my big 2020 investor lesson here. It's it was uh, I've learned a lot. Let me say I've learned a lot in 2020. Uh, but for some reason, when you posited this question to us, Nick, this was the first thing that came to mind to me. So I apologize in advance for my answer. Uh, but it's actually the power of the retail investor. Um, up until 2020, I had spent very little time thinking about how retail investors engage with big companies. Uh, For the most part, institutional investors have always been the main shareholders, have really driven uh, large changes in price. And while we at The Motley Fool obviously serve the little guy in the sense that we communicate, we talk to, we talk with individual investors, they're not the people that are driving investor hype, right? They're not the ones in driving stock prices. And for some reason, and and correct me if this impression is completely wrong, it felt like 2020 just flipped that on its head. Suddenly, it felt like the moves that we were seeing in the market was being driven by uh, what was a herd mindset among retail investors. Some of the companies that come to mind are like Kodak or Hertz, um, even Tesla, which institutional investors do play with. Those combined with the fact that I cover the cannabis industry in which institutional investors can't play for the most part. It was amazing to me to see the power of the individual investor in 2020. If you had told me any of these crazy stories would have happened in 2019 as a result, I would have said, you're crazy. Is the year of Wall Street bets, is that is that the uh, The, the year of Wall Street bre- bets, great. That's it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's wild. I, you know, I'd heard of Wall Street bets before this year, but it was kind of a place you went and looked around. It's like, hey, man, you believe that's a thing. But yeah, now I, I think it's another one of those things. You think everybody went, uh, you know, now your grandma knows what Zoom is. Now, you know, the, you know, the guy who has only ever, you know, you know, used paper spreadsheets probably knows what Wall Street Bets is now. Uh, you know, it's wild. <laughs> Nick, what's the uh, what's the thing for you this year? What what has 2020 taught you as an investor? Yeah, so the the one that, that that's taught me really is is things can change quickly. Life moves pretty fast. If you want to use like the Ferris Bueller line or whatever, you know, kind of going back to what I said earlier. I, I remember being in the office in January, turning to you, Dylan, and being like, "Yeah, you see this? They see this virus thing? Yeah, it's probably going to be like Ebola a couple of years ago. Everybody will freak out, and then everything, you know, will go back to normal." A month later, the stock market is, you know, down twenty percent, um, and, and you know, we're all deciding to, to lock down. And then I remember a few weeks after that, you know, the whole mask thing had, had become consensus, and then there's the questions around how quickly that's going to happen. And then we had the vaccine overnight, and everything has kind of has kind of quickly. Quickly returned, and I, you know, I felt like this year more than ever has reaffirmed this idea of always thinking long term. Because if you were always paying attention to the, the quick changes in the news, or, or you know, who's going to reopen when, or or what have you, you were going to lose the forest for the trees and probably make some some poor decisions. Uh, you know, in the midst of, of all of all the fire going on. Um, but I think if you focused on the long term, you could see some of these businesses that really were going to be in a strong position. Um, going forward, or, or actually maybe benefited um, from some trends that really sold off in, in March. So, like the analogy I was trying to think of is: you ever see like a dancer and she's spinning around and she has to like keep her head on the one spot so she doesn't get dizzy? I feel like you need to try to do some of that when it comes to investing, when it comes to like paying attention to the long term. Because if you try to pay attention to all this stuff going on, you're going to get confused, you're going to get dizzy, and you're going to fall over. You need like a little serenity plaque on your wall, <laughs> something you can stare at. Nick, if I were to guess, it'd probably be that Tua Tagovailoa picture behind you, huh? Yeah, you know, just a picture of Nick Saban, you know, just stare into him, you know. Yeah, exactly. I don't know, something like that. <laughs> um, I, I think for me with 2020, the the main takeaway was be humble. Um, and, you know, I, I personally had the best year I've ever had in my brokerage account. Um, and put up returns that I probably wouldn't have dreamed up. And that's just because I'm really overweight tech. I own a lot of software companies and the sector absolutely exploded this year. Um, I, I mean, I was right in some of the core thesis, you know, elements that I had where I was looking at the the major trends and saying, you know, these are companies that are going to benefit. I couldn't have told you that there was going to be a light switch that went off and immediately made those the most relevant and really the only way uh, for us to continue doing what we're doing. And so I think, you know, if you had a really great year in 2020, that's excellent. You know, that, that compounding is going to work in your favor for a really long time. But just realize, you know, this was something that not a lot of people could have really seen coming. And don't expect what you enjoyed this year, if you did wind up enjoying really great returns, to necessarily continue. Um, and I think on a, just on a personal note, you know, we're, we're incredibly fortunate in that we're able to continue working. You know, what we do here at The Fool didn't wind up getting interrupted too much. 
But, you know, there are tons and tons of people who have done all the right things, you know, and gotten advanced education or found, a, you know, a job that they really enjoy and, you know, been in a spot where they thought they were pretty well set up. And, you know, just by virtue of the industry that they tended to operate in, you know, might be out of work right now. And so, you know, if, if you're in a spot where you're uh, doing okay and, and you know, um, maybe even doing very well, just realize that there's not a lot that separates you from being in the other position. Yeah. Life moves pretty fast to kind of bring them together. And you, you could end up in a different situation here, here pretty quick. Who knows how, how quickly um, things can change. Okay. Uh, so talking about, you know, your, your biggest lesson as an investor from 2020, what did you get the most wrong in 2020? Jason? Uh, honestly, I, I never saw the recovery from the bear market like we witnessed. I mean, I was fully prepared for a down year with a lot of bad news in the markets. And I, I went back to the, to the services that I run here at The Fool, and I read some of the, the letters that I'd written to members just helping to, to, to ease their minds and keep focused on, on that, that long-term goal like we always talk about. And, and it, it really, at the time, it, it did feel like we were all preparing for a, a just a really bad year. I mean, this is going to be just a tough year, and you, you better buckle up because it's going to take a while. I mean, this was happening early on. And, and there, was, there was a Goldman Sachs study that I had found early on that talked about how um, event-driven bear markets, like the one that, that we witnessed, on average result in 29% declines. And I think we saw somewhere in the neighborhood of 32 33 34%, something like that. So, that was pretty close. And then, it said that typically, these types of bear markets, then they typically regain their previous levels within 15 months or so. And, and so, that all kind of just led me to believe, well, it's going to be a tough year, but just stay focused. There's probably going to be a good opportunity to buy some of your favorite companies here. We'll just we'll just stay focused. We'll be patient, and then boom, it was over. <laughs> like everything just just changed, and and we got back to normal. And then the market just kept chugging, and it seemed to defy all the data. Uh, but but here we are, and and so it just to me, I mean, we took advantage while we could, but but boy, I I just never saw that coming. Yeah, I tell you, I was trying to be like judicious during the sell-off and like you know be purposeful about deploying my cash, and that ended up being yeah the wrong decision. If you just went all one big wad in March, that ended up being the right way to go. No yeah. one would ever advise you do that, but no. it, you know, hindsight would tell <laughs> no. you that was the right thing to do. Yep. Yeah, it's wild. And and you know, for anybody listening, you still shouldn't do that just because it it wasn't you right. know the optimal because of the way things worked out. There's a lot of ways things can go, and uh, this is just one iteration of the way uh, things did end up did end up going. But yeah, it, it's wild. Uh, Emily. You asked the question, what did you get most wrong in 2020? And I think the better question is, what did you get right? Sure, uh, because sure. I don't think there is a <laughs> single thing that I expected for 2020 that came to fruition. Uh, but one thing in particular that dramatically went wrong was uh, my thesis on Peloton, actually. Uh, this was a business that I was inherently skeptical about, even pre-pandemic. I have to say, I'm, I, I think I'm scarred. I have a little <laughs> bit of, of post-traumatic stress from, from my investment in Fitbit. So when I hear a tech company come out and say, we're going we're gonna to be fitness tech, I'm like, man, I am still holding my shares of Fitbit, right? <laughs> like, I, have, I have lost so much money on that investment. What makes you different? And there are so many buzzwords in Peloton's story that, that brought me back to the Fitbit peak hype days that I thought the same was true for Peloton. And really, um, every quarter, even during the pandemic, I recognize, which is which is you know unusual, has been absolutely amazing for Peloton. Uh, the engagement that they've had with the people they've brought in has been spectacular. I would have never thought there was so much demand for at-home exercise equipment. I'm still not sure if I'm sold. Uh, I tend to believe that we as a species don't like exercise all that much. And I have to wonder how many people, I mean, look, obesity rates are, are greater than, was it 50, 40% in the United States right now? So uh, while there's definitely a need for, say, exercise equipment, I'm not sure that the engagement levels we'll see with people will still be so sustained heading into 2021. But if 2020 isn't any indicator of how wrong I've been about Peloton, I will certainly be wrong heading into 2021 as well. Yeah, I mean, going off Peloton, I mean, if you told me coming into this year that Tesla was going to be up 7x during a global pandemic, where at one point they were involved in a lawsuit with the state over whether they keep their factory open, 
uh, I would not have believed you. Um, but I think this is this is a lesson. And sometimes the things you pay attention to aren't what other people uh, uh, pay attention to. So I was looking into the year, this idea of more competition coming on in Europe, all those sorts of things as, as uh, you know, environmental regulations over there and encourage that to happen. That actually did happen. You look at the Renault. Renault Zoe is the number one selling uh, EV in Europe. Uh, Volkswagen has overtaken Tesla in Norway. Um, Germany, those sorts of things, but uh, setting new records as they expand into China, starting production in their uh, their German factory this year, split their stock, have gotten inclusion in the S and P five hundred, five straight quarters um, of profit. Uh, you know, part of that's due to regulatory credit sales, but it works uh, for for uh, for accounting purposes. And that you know they've joined the S and P five hundred. I think they just sold another five billion dollars in stock. And if you look at where the stock's trading now, their ability to continue issuing stock to, to support their, their growth opportunities going forward. <laughs> I mean, I think Jim Chano said it, said it himself. He's been short the stock for, I think, five years, said it's impossible to short today. I, I don't know how uh, uh, the company you know, today, if they can continue issuing stock and, and fund their growth operations going forward, I, I just don't know how you make much of a bear case today. Uh, at some point, perhaps uh, sentiment changes, but uh, until then, I just don't know how you can make a bear case. Um, for the company, yeah, you know, what's interesting with both of those is I, I don't know if either of you have positions. I mean, Emily, you you had kind of sworn off Peloton, but <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming that there wasn't a financial stake involved in that at all. There was not a financial stake involved in that call, and I'm really eating my words now because as we're stuck here at home, right, not being able to go to my gym and it being way too cold for the Texan in me to exercise outside, I've, I've made the jokes many a time, my jeans no longer fit. Um, so I am this close and I'm holding up my fingers, you know, very close, a centimeter away from buying some at-home exercise equipment. Um, and if I did buy that, I trust that I would continue using it next year. We'll see. But I would trust that if I did, I would. And and Nick, do you have any position in Tesla, positive or negative? Uh, so I've had I had um, a put position at one point that's going to go to zero. I will never have a position in Tesla ever again. <laughs> 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 way too hard, way too hard. Uh, no. You know, it, you got to realize the game you're playing, and if the market's playing a totally different different game from the one that you understand, uh, you should just watch. Well, I, and I, and I think with both of those, I mean, em- Emily, you you didn't understand selling and had no position. Uh, Nick, you didn't like something that you saw, but you put yourself in a position where worst case it was going to zero, right? You didn't, you didn't have unlimited downside. Oh, absolutely. I think, I think you would, I don't know how you could, you could, uh, you, you could, yeah, I don't know how you could short Tesla stock. I just don't know how you could do it or, or any, any story stock for, for, for that matter. Right. Because it's, it's at some point, maybe, maybe the story changes, but uh, you know, that's a tough bet. Yeah, and and I think I I just bring up this point. You know, there's the the often quoted line: there there are no called strikes when it comes to investing. And you know, in, in Emily's case, missing out on Peloton, you know, it was it was something I missed out on too. You know, it was a, it was a thesis that I'd sworn off, um, and just not really understood what was going on there. Um, but you know, there are a lot of other winners that I was able to invest in. Not everything's going to be a winner. Um, but you know, Nick, in your case, maybe you lost some money on Tesla, but that's why we invest in many companies. Right? Yeah. I, well, like you, you know, I, I'm having my best year ever this year. I'm I'm not Bailey Aiken too much. There you go. <laughs> and and because I'm having my best year ever, my my thing I got most wrong uh is is money related but but not individually stock uh related. And there are some individual stock things I could bring into the mix here, but um early in 2020 I wound up buying a a very rundown row house in DC. And I think that this was the thing I was most wrong about in 2020. Um, I thought it'd be a really fun experience to kind of go through, uh, renovate, and kind of oversee this project and have it become a place that we were going to be for you know the foreseeable future, uh, me and my girlfriend. And we kind of got through some of the planning phases, got a good sense of pricing, got to the point where we really felt like we had a good grip on it. And partially, we had the benefit of you know the, the pandemic and you know understanding that work from home, flexible work arrangements, all these things are going to become uh, a much bigger part of what the next couple of years look like. But we realized, you know, this wasn't necessarily what we wanted to do. And um, I think, you know, real estate transactions are a lot different than, you know, buying and selling stock. Uh, and it's it's nice to be able to just pay your commission or, or enjoy, you know, commission-free trades um, and be able to wipe your hands of something. A little bit more complicated with real estate. But I was lucky enough to kind of have put myself in a position where there was a decent margin of safety with that. And so I was able to kind of walk away, uh, find a buyer and, and walk away uh, unscathed, which was great. Um, there was a, a very good lesson in that. It kind of ties into that idea of humility for me. But I would just advise anyone who's thinking about doing a full gut remodel renovation project, <laughs> think twice. <laughs> because that was probably what I got most wrong in 2020. So like, what, what was the moment where you were just like, oh, crap, this is, this is, this is more than I want? Um, I, I think when you start contextualizing things 
outside of what the immediate market allows. So like within the DC market, understanding like the core mortgage plus renovation that you would roll into uh, a refi is one thing. And you're like, oh, well, yeah, I'm stacking that against other townhomes in the area. And that makes sense. But then you take that step back and you're like, well, wait a minute. If I'm looking just at what that money does in general or what I could be doing with that money instead, is that really what I want to do? And that was kind of the aha moment for me. I was like, you know, I think I think we'd be okay with with selling this, coming out ahead, uh, and then renting, and and being able to enjoy more flexibility, possibly explore other places at some point if that's something that's in the cards for us because we have that flexibility with the full. I thought it was a pipe burst. I mean, I thought you had some plumbing <laughs> crisis that just made you say, "No way, man!" I didn't realize this was part of the deal. I mean, yeah, or home, home ownership, home ownership with a you know a good home is is difficult. I mean, renovating is just that is that's a lot of hard work. Yeah, and and you know I think it's it's an easy thing to romanticize, and I would oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would caution people against doing that. Um, and you know industry focus at fool dot com if you ever want to get in touch. H- and talk through it. <laughs> HGTV romanticizes it every day, Dylan. Every day. All right. We've got uh, two topics left. Before I ask you for your favorite stock right now, I want each of you to give me one New Year's investing resolution for 2021. Jason. I'm just going to come up with a new compelling basket idea. I really actually like doing that. It's something that gets me... It, it, it sort of divorces me from my services a little bit, gives me a chance to maybe learn a little bit uh, of a new circle of competence, so to speak. And, and so, uh, along with the healthcare basket and the war on cash basket and the, the AAA basket, I want to come up with a new compelling basket idea um, to, to kick out there for investors as we kick off the new year. I like that. I, I- I got one recommendation for you. I want like a kids these days basket. I want it for like the Gen Z and the millennials, oh, and it's called Kids These Days. And you got to give me stuff that the kids these days are using. I yeah, man, listen. I look every every day. I look at investing through the lens of my two daughters. They're uh, freshmen and sophomore in high school, and it is it is eye opening to say the least. I think that's a genius basket idea, and it's so much better than my resolution. Again, I I really shouldn't be going after Jason here. It's it's disappointing people. Um, I know my New Year's investing resolution, as lame as it is, is just to add to my winners. I I swear I'm like a kid in a candy shop sometime with companies. You spend all day, at least in our jobs, um, researching companies, learning about businesses. That whenever I have the opportunity to buy. I just want to go after the new shiny object. And oftentimes that means that I'm not putting money into companies that have just been stellar performers. I was looking over my portfolio today and I'm a one-time buyer of Shopify and it's one of the best performing stocks in my portfolio. There are so many businesses that despite succeeding, right, I could have simply invested more money into Shopify and probably been better off. So hopefully uh, more of a narrow focus for me and my individual portfolio heading into 2021. Emily, hand over my heart, honesty. I, I almost went with that. That's a great one, I think. That's a great one. <laughs> you have the more exciting one. You left me the boring one. I appreciate nah, it. Oh, man. Adding the winners is just watching that money turn into more money. That's exciting. But, but Emily, I think you're, you're hitting on something that's just like so hard to do. And it's like you've already, you've already got the position. You feel like you've kind of checked it. And yeah. uh, you know, you're like, all right, I can move on to the next thing. But you know, so often, the, the best stock to buy is the one you already own. Yep. Balance everything. Your money is worth stuff, right? So when you look at your portfolio and you're allocating cash, um, don't value a new position over an old one. Ask yourself, do I really like this new company better than anything I already own? And if the answer is no, buy what you already own. The other piece of advice I'll give related to that is don't let spite get in the way of that. Like if, if you're mad at yourself for not having bought and it's been like a year since you've, you know, added that first position and you're like, ah, you know, I was supposed to buy more there. Don't say, all right, it's been a while, the stock's gone up. You know, if you still want to buy it, buy more of it. Don't don't let that resistance get in the way of making what what would ultimately probably be a good decision. Yeah, I, I'm really not that more original on top of uh, of what you and Emily have said, Dylan. Mine is just mine is just keep it simple. I think my, my biggest mistakes this year, and I don't know if they were mistakes, but more kind of mistakes of omission of looking all you know where's this where's this because of what has happened with COVID, where is this new opportunity now that I can go find find a stock and show my you know incredible stock picking skill out there uh, when really the, the, the investments that I, I've done the best with are, are companies that I already had a basic thesis on them coming in and there was a value opportunity created because of the kind of volatility I just went and bought into them companies like Pinterest match group um, companies like that I think I think a big thing that this year has kind of revealed for me is and it, this has always been true in the stock market is you don't get any bonus points for originality you don't <laughs> get any bonus points for degree of difficulty. 
Uh, it, just because it's like a die, you know, it's a ten out of ten difficulty dive. You're gonna get paid the same. You might even get paid less in the stock market um, for for doing the the you know the the higher degree of difficulty move. And so I I, I just want to be keep things simple, stick to the stuff I know um, in in 2021, and avoid some uh, some of those mistakes I made last year. There are no style points, Nick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you get this idea, like everybody. Oh, I'm going to do this deep dive, and oh, I re- I read this footnote in the uh, in the 10K that nobody else read. That can work, but so- sometimes that there are things that are much easier than that that are right in front of you. Companies you already own. Another example, you know, Emily talked about adding to your winners. I didn't add to PayPal this year, and there could not have been a more obvious beneficiary from us being on lockdown than PayPal. And I just didn't do it because I already had you know a good amount of stock, and just you know, it, it's already it's too obvious. Right, and that was a mistake on my end um, because I had the the house stuff going on and the plans for renovations. I actually have not bought a stock in the last nine months, and so I I am sitting on a lot of cash. And and once we once we close, I'll be sitting on even more. And so that will be kind of the time for me to put some serious capital to work. And so the New Year's resolution for me is put that capital to work and do it in a nice systematized way, uh, and and not just go blowing it like I uh, just got my allowance, you know, and <laughs> and am uh, in the candy store. So, you know, I think for me, that's that's revisiting a lot of ideas that came up over the past year on IF um, and, and various full services. I have a watch list that is long, and it's been dispiriting to see it continue to get longer because I haven't made any purchases. And so, I'm excited to start putting some of that money to work. All right. Well, our last segment, maybe we can give you a short list uh, to go for to those purchases. Jason talked about putting a basket together. I guess you could call this a basket. Uh, what's y'all's favorite stock right now? Jason, what's what's your uh, your choice for favorite stock right now? See, I like that. We're just You guys are doing the work for me here. We just come up with this basket. Boom. Resolution taken care of. I'm all for <laughs> it. Um, I, I'm going to go with a company that Matt and I spoke about on a recent episode of the financial show, Encino, ticker is N-C-N-O. And this is a new IPO from just July of of this year. They've reported two quarters worth of results so far, and uh, everything seems to be headed in the right direction. It's certainly a company that's growing very fast, but they are a... A business that offer they offer a SaaS model, a subscription model, um, and it's an operating system for banks, and and it offers these banks customer relationship management and customer onboarding, account opening, loan origination, deposit accounts, workflow, uh, instant reporting solutions. I mean, this is really a one stop shop operating system for banks. And it is it is one that's gained a lot of traction. They now have about twenty percent of the the banks uh, domestically as as customers. And you may have heard of of one of their their biggest customers, probably their biggest customer, I guess, Bank of America. I mean, anytime you get Bank of America on board, I feel like you've probably done something well. Uh, and, and the interesting thing here with this business, it's built on Salesforce architecture. Salesforce actually owns twelve percent of the company, and so. I, I I like Salesforce a lot, so anytime I see that Mark Benioff is involved, it, it gets my attention. And uh, and, and in this case, uh, it's it's something where they really are benefiting. It sounds like from Salesforce expertise uh, to to at least some degree. But it reminds me a lot of you guys. I'm sure all remember uh, that business, Ellie May, uh, the mortgage software provider that was acquired a little while back, but a business that um, a lot of us liked. At the fool, and and it was it was a very similar style offering in in that it just it, it offered a very simple solution that covered all the bases, and there are certainly regulatory uh, issues that have to be adhered to. So you can over time you can develop some network effects, some some switching costs, which could down the line lead to some pricing power. Uh, you've got co-founders still involved with the business. It is it is a it is a young business, a small business still uh, in terms of revenue. It's it's trading uh, right now around forty times sales, around seventy three times gross profit. It's, it's really uh, no bottom line profits to speak of. But um, it's it, it this is a this is a neat business that I feel like is is not going to go anywhere. I mean, they really have developed a solution that a lot of banks are are uh, are buying into and. Um, it's it's one that that I'll be having on on my radar here for for the coming weeks and, and months, and hopefully that valuation gets to a point where I feel a little bit more comfortable, or if I can just get to a point where I'm highly convicted on the business to make valuation a non-issue. 
Yeah, that, that's a that's a recurring question this year. I was like, you know, how confident am I confident enough to, to get there on valuation? But clearly, lots of lots of potential uh, for this business and, and lots of lots of others in this tech space this year. Yeah. Well, I'll give you a company that I am highly confident on, even at today's valuation. Um, there are very few companies that I can look at in the market today and say I have uh, little qualms or hesitation, and this is one of them. I'm also excited because it's not a consumer goods stock, so I get the opportunity <laughs> to highlight some of the other work and research that I do across the Motley Fool uh, stocks and services. So the company I'm talking about is DocuSign. The ticker is D-O-C-U. Um, everyone's nodding. Uh, so I'm taking it that most listeners will probably know what DocuSign is, but they may associate DocuSign with just e-signature solutions. They're the platform that you use when you need to sign something digitally. But DocuSign is so much more than that. And they're being valued today like an e-signature solutions company. Uh, people identify Adobe or HelloSign as competitors, when in reality, they're competing in the contract lifecycle management market, what they call the agreement cloud, where they really have no competition, to be honest. If they do, it's extremely fragmented. Um, I'll take a little bit of a personal antidote here. Before I came to The Fool, I was doing uh, energy project finance modeling. So I spent my days reading uh, contracts and Nick smiling because he's a lawyer, so he knows. <laughs> um, I spent my days reading contracts uh, you know, acro across different offtake agreements related to energy projects. And then I would build models based off the terms created in the contract. And uh, reading the con contracts, which is complete drudgery, it was uh, a new form of torture. I spent at least 50% of my time reading uh, legalese that was hundreds and hundreds of pages long. Some of the new initiatives that DocuSign's getting into is DocuSign Analytics and DocuSign Insights, where their AI and their software will parse contracts and immediately bring your eye to special terms and clauses that could be important to things like modeling, but more often to be important to things that are unusual. So when you as a consumer or you as a business are taking a look at contracts can, that can be hundreds of pages long, you can use the AI to automatically pull out terms or, or clauses that may be unusual for your specific needs. That level of applicability I am so enthused about because I believe it can not just be necessary for jobs across many industries, but I think it can replace jobs themselves. I mean, that's how much time and energy and money that DocuSign can save for businesses. That's on top of the offerings that they have for things like mortgages, real estate, even drug, food and drug companies that are dealing with uh, obviously a lot of regulations in the space. So there's a ton of specific services that DocuSign is looking to serve for each individual industry that I believe makes them have an addressable market that is much larger than today's current valuation. So I'm enthused about it. It's one of my favorite companies now. So hot seat document review lawyers. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's a friendly name to throw out there, Emily. I'm a shareholder. I think Jason's a shareholder. I am. <laughs> yeah, you're a man out here. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm preaching to the choir then. Maybe exactly. I should have gone with Chewy again. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, I mean, I like Chewy too. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I'll hop in with, with mine. So my, my uh, stock pick is Match Group. There aren't really a ticker MTCH, about a $40 billion company. There aren't really a lot of companies out there you can look at and I think they're kind of inevitable, and I, and I think Match Group is one of those, for folks who aren't familiar, uh, Match Group is the largest operator in the world when it comes to online dating services, $40 billion valuation. When you look at significant competitors, there aren't really that many meaningful ones. You've got Spark Network, which trades on the American Stock Exchange and ticker LOV, the parent company of Christian Mingle, JDate, and Zeusk. Their market cap's $125 million compared to $40 billion for Match. You've got privately held Bumble. Uh, valued at about $8 billion valuations, rumored to come come public um, in 2021. There's some smaller smaller Chinese operators, but for all intents and purposes, Match Group controls every platform of significance in the space. So their parent, uh, their par uh, legacy uh, company, Match, OkCupid, Plenty of Fish, MeTech, those are some of the, the older platforms. Tinder is the one that folks are probably most familiar with. That's the number one dating app in the world by downloads. Also the number one grossing app in the world just in general. Uh, their other platform uh, that's really seeing significant growth is Hinge. Hinge is a platform they acquired in 2018. At the time, downloads were decelerating on that platform. You look uh, this year, Downloads up 82% uh, year over year through the third quarter. Average revenue per user up over 100%. Direct revenue 
up 200% year over year in the third quarter. If you look at direct revenue for the business, that's generally memberships uh, for its different services. That's grown at a 23% compound annual growth rate going back for the past five years. Uh, just really strong uh, uh, positioning in the market. Uh, the really thing that gets me excited about, about them is uh, folks should go read, if you haven't, uh, the, the Tyro Partners Dating market paper came out late in 2019. I had him on the podcast at the beginning of uh, of this year. The most bullish chart I've ever seen, ever. I've tweeted <laughs> it out like a gazillion times if you follow me on Twitter. But if you look at, uh, there, there was a study that came out of Stanford, uh, had data going back to 2017. It shows how couples met by year. And there's this red line on the chart that goes straight up starting in 1993. And that's how, how folks met, uh, you know, folks meeting online. If, if you just to take some conservative estimates today, probably around two thirds of folks are, are meeting online. Uh, and that's without the pandemic clearly kind of disrupting what, what is traditional dating. If you were if you weren't uh, an online dating adopter today, you, you, you uh, coming into 2020, you certainly are today. It makes Match Group one of those few companies that, that you could think of as a stay at home stock and an, an, a reopening stock as mo- more folks return to the market, go back to dating, uh, things like that. Uh, the other thing to mention is, is there's been this massive growth in you know, more folks meeting online. But if you look at, you know, at markets outside the West, say the Middle East, some places where traditionally dating has been less liberal when it comes to uh, gender dynamics, uh, online platforms are particularly popular there as it allows women to take more autonomy over their, over their uh, you know, dating life. And so that, that's, that's a huge trend uh, for them as well outside of the U.S. So when you look at Match Group today, 65 times earnings, not cheap at all, uh, but valued at $40 billion today. You view it as, as essentially this is a company that has control over how couples meet going forward. They're the dominant platform. You ask me what that's worth. It's worth a heck of a lot more than $40 billion. Um, you ask about willingness of, of, of people to pay. Um, predominantly, the folks paying on these platforms are men. I'm pulling the number off the top of my head, it's women are something like 25 times more likely to get a match than a male. So predominantly, the payers on these platforms are males. Uh, I've tweeted about this a, a bunch of times, but uh, when you think about what are thirsty dudes willing to pay that have access to women to date, there is no limit. And I think that's probably the case for Match Group. So valued at $40 billion today. I don't know what the valuation is, but I think it's a heck of a lot more 10 years from now. So Nick, I might be stealing one from your sector for uh, for my stock. You know, it's, it's industrials. It's a little bit tech too. Uh, but this is a company I've talked about plenty, both in the podcast and on Fool Live. Uh, and that is Axon Enterprises. Um, oh, yeah. it's, uh, it's a name that a lot of people probably know uh, by its old name, uh, Taser. And, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are kind of looking at software companies right now and saying, you know, these valuations seem a little stretched. I'm a little bit worried about their ability to grow into the the valuations that they've got right now. I think that this is, one, just a great business and, and two, a really nice way to continue to play on the benefits of the software model and the cloud model with a little bit more security um, and, and maybe not as stretched a valuation. Uh, and so this is a company that's known for their legacy taser business, but the, really the bread and butter for them now is their Axon body cameras and their evidence.com cloud storage business. And so they provide body cameras to law enforcement. They also maintain the cloud storage of the footage that's collected on those body cameras uh, for continuity and to make sure that that's accessible. I think this is just one of those win-win businesses. Um, you know, we, we generally see uh, better results all around when we have accountability. And this is something that offers accountability, also offers protection for law enforcement because, hey, you know, it, it's an undisputable record of what happens. And I think everyone's happier when that's the case. A uh, couple quick things here on the business, 60% gross margins, 13 times sales is the current valuation. So it's not too, too crazy, uh, given what we're seeing there in terms of software. Uh, and yet, I think about 70% of their revenue is subscription-based, uh, high 20% year-over-year growth rates. They're only about an $8 billion company right now. I don't expect them to double in the next year, but I think this is going to be one of those really great compounders over the next couple of years. Um, it's a great win-win business, and I think crucially, no one else plays in this space. They don't have a major competitor. Um, they're locked in with law enforcement, uh, and they have you know some long-term agreements in place. So, not a business that's going to go anywhere anytime soon. And there's really no one competing with them. 
I've owned it for a long time and I've been a very happy shareholder. I don't think that run's going to end anytime soon. You got some fans here too. I've I've been I've Axon is probably the most recent stock that I that I've bought. So I think I think we're all on on board. So there there's your basket, folks. You've got Encino. That's N C N O. You've got Match M T C H. You've got Axon A A X N, and then Emily. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm dropping Emily's pick. DocuSign. DocuSign. D O C U. There there you go. There you go. Any last <laughs> thoughts before we let folks uh, head back for their you know, Christmas Eve celebration. You know, I'm sure everybody's listening to this around the table. So, <laughs> well, I would just say, you know, we, we, we say it all the time, but, you know, we love getting ideas for the show. And so, you know, if you have specific themes that you want us to unpack with episodes uh, in 2021, write in industryfocus at fool.com. Um, I think in particular, we've heard your feedback on Wildcard Wednesday, and we're going to be bringing some more healthcare conversations into the mix. <laughs> but one of the easiest ways to guarantee that we're talking about stuff that you're interested in is to, to drop us a note or hit us up on Twitter at MF Industry Focus uh, and just make sure that we're, we're hearing you. All right. Yeah. And one quick reminder for folks, there will be no industry focus shows on Thursday or Friday this week, as we'll be taking some time off to celebrate Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. But Jason will be back on Monday to update you with everything that's going on in financials. Until then, as always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Dan Boyd for mixing the show. For the whole industry-focused team, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.